0: Section 17 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by alexander and george sutherland section seventeen explorations in the interior eighteen forty to eighteen sixty one progress of exploration the coasts of australia had all been examined before the year eighteen fifteen from that date those who wished to make fresh discoveries were obliged to penetrate into the interior and we have already seen that previous to the year 1836, explorers were busy in opening up the south-east portion of the continent. Oxley had made known the northern districts of New South Wales, and Alan Cunningham the southern part of what is now the colony of Queensland. Hume and Hovell, Sturt and Mitchell had traversed the southern districts of New South Wales and the territory now occupied by Victoria. Following closely in the footsteps of these intrepid discoverers, the squatters had entered all these districts, and wherever the land was suitable, had settled down with their flocks, so that ere long all that corner of Australia, which would be cut off by drawing a straight line from Brisbane to Adelaide, was fully surveyed but there still remained to be explored about seven-eighths of the continent, and from this date onward there was an unbroken succession of adventurous travellers, who entered the vast central territory for the purpose of making known its nature and capacities. But the manner of conducting an expedition was now very different from what it had been. Previous explorers had been provided with parties of convicts, and had traversed lands for the greater part grassy and well-watered. These expeditions had their dangers, arising chiefly from the hostility of the blacks, and Alan Cunningham, his brother Richard, with many others, sacrificed their lives in their ardour for discovery. But subsequent travellers had to encounter, in addition... THE PANGS OF HUNGER AND THIRST IN THAT DRY AND DESOLATE COUNTRY WHICH OCCUPIES SO GREAT A PORTION OF CENTRAL AUSTRALIA. 2. AIR THE FIRST ON THIS roll OF GALLANT DISCOVERERS WAS EDWARD JOHN AIR, WHO IN 1840 OFFERED TO CONDUCT AN EXPEDITION TO THE INTERIOR. HE HIMSELF PROVIDED ABOUT HALF THE MONEY REQUIRED, THE SOUTH AUSTRALIAN GOVERNMENT, which was then in difficulties, gave a hundred pounds, and a number of heirs' personal friends made up the remainder. With five Europeans, three natives, and thirteen horses, and with forty sheep to serve as food on the way, he set out from Adelaide and travelled to the head of Spencer's Gulf, where a small vessel lay waiting to supply them with provisions sufficient for three months. Having traversed forty or fifty miles of desert land, he turned to the west, and came in sight of what he called Lake Torrens. It was now dried up, so that in place of a sheet of water twenty miles broad, he saw only a dreary region covered with glittering salt. When he entered upon it, the thin crust of salt broke, and a thick black mud oozed up, the party plunged onward for about six miles, the mud becoming always deeper and deeper, till at length it half covered the saddles of their horses. He was then forced to turn back and to seek a passage round this lake of mud. But having followed its shores for many miles, there seemed to be so little prospect of reaching the end of the obstacle, that he turned his course again from west to north after travelling about two hundred miles through a very desolate country he was once more arrested by coming upon a similar sheet of salt encrusted mud which he called lake air again there appeared no hope of either crossing the lake or going round it no water was to be found and his supplies were fast failing so that he was forced to hasten back a long distance to the nearest stream. Setting out once more, he twice attempted to penetrate westward into the interior, but on each occasion the salt lakes barred his progress, and as a last effort he urged his failing party towards the northeast. Here the country was the most barren and desolate that can be imagined it was not always so but after a period of drought when the grass is burnt to the roots and not a drop of fresh water to be seen in a hundred miles it has all the appearance of a desert his supplies of water ran short and frequently the explorers were on the point of perishing when they approached the Froome river a creek which flows northwards into lake air They were inexpressibly delighted to view from afar the winding current, but its waters were found to be as salt as the ocean. After a long and dreary journey, air ascended a hill in order to see if there was any hope of finding better country, but the view was only a great and barren level, stretching far away to the horizon on every side. He had now no water, and his only course was to turn back. So, leaving this place, which he called Mount Hopeless, he retraced his steps to the head of Spencer's Gulf. 3. Australian Bight Here he changed the object of his journey, and made efforts to go along the shores of the Great Australian Bight, in order to reach West Australia. Three times he rounded Streaky Bay, but in that bare and desert land the want of water was an insuperable obstacle and each time he was forced to retreat to less desolate country governor Gawler now sent word to him to return to adelaide as it seemed madness to make further efforts but eyre replied that to go back without having accomplished anything would be a disgrace he could never endure Seeing that his only chance of reaching West Australia was to push rapidly forward with a simple and light equipment, he sent back the whole of his party, except Mr Baxter, his black servant Wiley, and the other two natives, and, taking with him a few horses, carrying a supply of water and provisions for several weeks, he set out to follow the coast along the Great Australian Bight his party had to scramble along the tops of rough cliffs, which everywhere frowned from three hundred to six hundred feet above the sea, and if they left the coast to travel inland, they had to traverse great stretches of moving sands, which filled their eyes and ears, covered them when at sleep, and when they sat at meals, made their food unpleasant. But they suffered most from want of water, for often they were obliged to walk day after day beneath a broiling sun, when all their water was gone, and not a drop to be seen on the burning soil beneath them. On one occasion, after they had thus travelled a hundred and ten miles, the horses fell down from exhaustion, and could not be induced to move. Air and a native hastened forward, but though they wandered for more than eighteen miles they saw no sign of water and when darkness came on they lay down with lips parched and burning and tossed in feverish slumber till morning at early dawn they perceived a ridge of sand hills not far away and making for them they found a number of little wells places where the natives had dug into the sand for six or eight feet and so had reached fresh water here eyre and his black companion drank a delicious draught and hastened back with the precious beverage to revive the horses the whole party was then able to go forward and there around these little water-holes eyre halted for a week to refresh his men and animals before attempting another stretch of similar country they saw some natives who told them that there was plenty of water further on and when they had set out again he carried very little with him so as to not overburden the horses but after sixty miles of the desert had been traversed without meeting any place in which water was to be found he became alarmed and sent back mr baxter with the horses to bring up a better supply whilst he himself remained to take charge of the baggage when baxter returned they all set forward again and reached a sandy beach where they had great difficulty in preventing the horses from drinking the sea-water which would certainly have made them mad as it was two of them lay down to die and part of the provisions had to be abandoned baxter now grew despondent and wished to return but Eyre was determined not yet to give up. Onward they toiled through the dreary wilderness, and two more horses fell exhausted, a hundred and twenty-six miles from the last halting place, and still no signs of water. Still onward, and the horses continued to drop by the way, Baxter constantly entreating Ayre to return it was only after a journey of a hundred and sixty miles that they came to a place where by digging they could obtain fresh water in very small quantities they were now forced to eke out their failing provisions by eating horseflesh baxter was altogether disheartened and if to return had not been as dangerous as to go forward Eyre would himself have abandoned the attempt the three natives however were still as light-hearted and merry as ever while the food lasted they were always full of frolic and laughter four death of baxter each evening air formed a little camp loaded the muskets and laid them down ready for use in case of an attack by the blacks the horses were hobbled and set free to gather the little vegetation they could find but this forced air and baxter to keep watch by turns lest they should stray so far as to be lost one evening when air had taken the first watch the horses in their search for grass had wandered about a quarter of a mile from the camp he had followed them and was sitting on a stone beneath the moonlight musing on his gloomy prospects when he was startled by a flash and a report Hastening to the camp, he was met by Wiley, who was speechless with terror, and could only wring his hands and cry, Oh, Massa! When he entered, he saw Baxter lying on his face, whilst the baggage was broken open and scattered in all directions. He raised the wounded man in his arms, but only in time to support him, as his head fell back in death then placing the body on the ground and looking around him, he perceived that two of his natives had plundered the provisions, shot Mr. Baxter as he rose to remonstrate with them, and had then escaped. The moon became obscured, and in the deep gloom, beside the dead body of his friend, air passed a fearful night, peering into the darkness, Lest the miscreants might be lurking near to shoot him also. He says in his diary, Ages can never efface the horrors of that single night, nor would the wealth of the world ever tempt me to go through a similar one. The slowly spreading dawn revealed the bleeding corpse, the plundered bags, and the crouching form of Wiley, who was still faithful. The ground at this place consisted of a great hard sheet of rock, and there was no chance of digging a grave. So Eyre could only wrap the body in a blanket, leave it lying on the surface, and thus take farewell of his friend's remains. 5. Arrival at King George's Sound Then he and Wiley set out together on their mournful journey. They had very little water. And seven days elapsed before they reached a place where more was to be obtained. At intervals they could see the murderers stealthily following their footsteps, and air was afraid to lie down, lest his sleep should prove to have no awaking. And thus, with parching thirst by day and hours of watchfulness by night, he slowly made his way towards King George's Sound. After a time, the country became better. He saw and shot two kangaroos, and once more approached the coast. His surprise was great on seeing two boats some distance out at sea. He shouted and fired his rifle, without attracting the attention of the crews. But on rounding a small cape, he found the vessel to which these boats belonged. It was a French whaling ship, And the two men, having been taken on board, were hospitably entertained for eleven days. Captain Rossiter gave them new clothes and abundance of food, and when they were thoroughly refreshed, they landed to pursue their journey. The country was not now so inhospitable, and three weeks afterwards they stood on the brow of a hill overlooking the little town of Albany at King George's Sound here they sat down to rest but the people hearing who they were came out to escort them triumphantly into the town where they were received with the utmost kindness they remained for eleven days and then set sail for adelaide which they reached after an absence of one year and twenty-six days this expedition was unfortunately through so barren a country that it had but little practical effect, beyond the additions it made to our geography, but the perseverance and skill with which it was conducted are worthy of all honour, and Eyre is to be remembered as the first explorer who braved the dangers of the Australian desert. 6. Sturt. Two years after the return of Eyre, Captain Sturt, the famous discoverer of the darling and murray wrote to lord stanley offering to conduct an expedition into the heart of australia his offer was accepted and in may eighteen forty four a well-equipped party of sixteen persons was ready to start from the banks of the darling river places which sturt had explored sixteen years before when they were a deep and unknown solitude were now covered with flocks and cattle and he could use as the starting-place of this expedition the farthest point he had reached in that of eighteen twenty eight mr poole went with him as surveyor mr brown as surgeon and the draughtsman was mr j mcdwell stewart who in this expedition received a splendid training for his own great discoveries of subsequent years following the darling they reached laidley's ponds passed near lake corndilla and then struck northward for the interior the country was very bare one dead level of cheerless desert and when they reached a few hills which they called stanley range now better known as barrier range sturt who ascended to one of the summits could see nothing hopeful in the prospect how little did he dream that the hills beneath him were full of silver, and that one day a populous city of miners should occupy the waterless plain in front of him. In this region he had to be very careful how he advanced, for he had with him eleven horses, thirty bullocks, and two hundred sheep, and water for so great a multitude could with difficulty be procured. He had always to ride forward and find a creek or pond of sufficient size as the next place of encampment before allowing the expedition to move on. And as water was often very difficult to find, his progress was but slow. Fortunately for the party, it was the winter season, and a few of the little creeks had a moderate supply of water. But after they had reached a chain of hills, which sturt called the grey range the warm season was already upon them the summer of eighteen forty four was one of the most intense on record and in these vast interior plains of sand under the fiery glare of the sun the earth seemed to burn like plates of metal it split the hoofs of the horses it scorched the shoes and the feet of the men It dried up the water from the creeks and pools, and left all the country parched and full of cracks. Sturt spent a time of great anxiety, for the streams around were rapidly disappearing, and when all the water had been dried up, the prospects of his party would, indeed, be gloomy his relief was therefore great when mr Poole found a creek in a rocky basin whose waters seemed to have a perennial flow sturt moved forward and formed his depot beside the stream and here he was forced to remain for six weeks for it appeared as though he had entered a trap the country before him was absolutely without water so that he could not advance While the creeks behind him were now only dry courses, and it was hopeless to think of returning. He made many attempts to escape and struck out into the country in all directions. In one of his efforts, if he had gone only thirty miles farther, he would have found the fine stream of Cooper's Creek, in which there was sufficient water for the party. But hunger and thirst forced him to return to the depot he followed down the creek on which they were encamped, but found that, after a course of twenty-nine miles, it lost itself in the sand. Meanwhile, the travellers passed a summer such as few men have ever experienced. The heat was sometimes as high as a hundred and thirty degrees in the shade, and in the sun it was altogether intolerable. They were unable to write, as the ink dried at once on their pens. Their combs split, their nails became brittle and readily broke, and if they touched a piece of metal, it blistered their fingers. In their extremity they dug an underground room, deep enough to be beyond the dreadful furnace-glow above. Here they spent many a long day, as month after month passed, without a shower of rain sometimes they watched the clouds gather and they could hear the distant roll of thunder but there fell not a drop to refresh the dry and dusty desert the party began to grow thin and weak mr pool became ill with scurvy and from day to day he sank rapidly at length when winter was again approaching a gentle shower moistened the plain and as the only chance of saving the life of poole half of the party was sent to carry him quickly back to the darling they had been gone only a few hours when a messenger rode back with the news that he was already dead the mournful cavalcade returned bearing his remains and a grave was dug in the wilderness a tree close by on which his initials were cut formed the only memorial of the hapless explorer seven journey to the centre shortly afterwards there came a succession of wet days and as there was now an abundance of water the whole party once more set off having travelled north-west for sixty-one miles farther they formed a new depot and made excursions to explore the country in the neighbourhood McDougall Stewart crossed over to Lake Torrance, while Sturt, with Dr. Brown and three men, pushing to the north, discovered the Streslecky Creek, a stream which flows through very agreeable country. But as they proceeded farther to the north, their troubles began again. They came upon a region covered with hill after hill of fiery red sand, amid which lay lagoons of salt and bitter water, they toiled over this weary country in hopes that a change for the better might soon appear. But when they reached the last hill, they had the mortification to see a great plain, barren, monotonous, and dreary, stretching with a purple glare as far as the eye could reach on every side this plain was called by sturt the stony desert for on descending he found it covered with innumerable pieces of quartz and sandstone among which the horses wearily stumbled sturt wished to penetrate as far as the tropic of capricorn but summer was again at hand their water was failing and they could find neither stream nor pool When the madness of any farther advance became apparent, Sturt, with his head buried in his hands, sat for an hour in bitter disappointment. After toiling so far, and reaching within a hundred and fifty miles of his destination, to be turned back for the want of a little water was a misfortune very hard to bear, and but for his companions he would have still gone forward, and perished as they hastened back their water was exhausted and they were often in danger of being buried by moving hills of sand but at length they reached the depot having traversed eight hundred miles during the eight weeks of their absence it was not long before sturt started again taking with him mcdoor stuart as his companion on this trip he suffered the same hardships but had the satisfaction of discovering a magnificent stream which he called cooper's creek on crossing this creek he again entered the stony desert and was once more compelled reluctantly to retrace his steps when he reached the depot he was utterly worn out he lay in bed for a long time tenderly nursed by his companions and when the whole party set out on its return to the settled districts he had to be lifted in and out of the dray in which he was carried as they neared their homes his sight began to fail the glare of the burning sands had destroyed his eyes and he passed the remainder of his days in darkness his reports of the arid country gave rise to the opinion that the whole interior of australia was a desert but this was afterwards found to be far from correct eight leichardt allan cunningham's discoveries extended over the northern parts of new south wales and the southern districts of queensland but all the north-eastern parts of the continent were left unexplored until eighteen forty four when an intrepid young German botanist, named Ludwig Leichhardt, made known this rich and fertile country. With five men he started from Sydney, and passing through splendid forests and magnificent pasture-lands, he made his way to the Gulf of Carpentaria, discovering and following up many large rivers, the Fitzroy with its tributaries, the Dawson, the Isaacs, and the Mackenzie, the with several of its branches, then the Mitchell, and lastly the Gilbert. He also crossed the Flinders and Albert, without knowing that a short time previously these rivers had been discovered and named by Captain Stokes, who was exploring the coasts in a British warship. Having rounded the gulf, he discovered the Roper, and followed the Alligator River down to Van Diemen's Gulf, where a vessel was waiting to receive his party on his return to sydney the utmost enthusiasm prevailed for Leichhardt had made known a wide stretch of most valuable country the people of sydney raised a subscription of one thousand five hundred pounds and the government rewarded his services with a thousand pounds Leichhardt was of too ardent a nature to remain content with what he had already done, and in 1847 he again set out to make further explorations in the north of Queensland. On this occasion, however, he was not so successful. He had taken with him great flocks of sheep and goats, and they impeded his progress so much that after wandering over the Fitzroy Downs for about seven months, he was forced to return. In 1848 he organised a third expedition to cross the whole country from east to west. He proposed to start from Morton Bay, and to take two years in traversing the centre of the continent, so as to reach the Swan River settlement. He set out with a large party, and soon reached the Kogan River, a tributary of the Condamine from this point he sent to a friend in sydney a letter in which he described himself as in good spirits and full of hope that the expedition would be a success he then started into the wilderness and was lost for ever from men's view for many years parties were from time to time sent out to rescue the missing explorers if perchance they might still be wandering with the blacks in the interior but no traces of the lost company have ever been brought to light nine mitchell whilst Leichhardt was absent on his first journey sir thomas mitchell the discoverer of the glenelg had prepared an expedition for the exploration of queensland having waited till the return of Leichhardt in order not to go over the same ground he set out towards the north and after discovering the kalgoa and warrigo two important tributaries of the darling he turned to the west he travelled over a great extent of level country and then came upon a river which somewhat puzzled him he followed the current for a hundred and fifty miles and it seemed to flow steadily towards the heart of the continent he thought that its waters must eventually find their way to the sea and would therefore after a time flow north to the indian ocean if that were the case the river which the natives called the baku must be the largest stream on the northern coast and he concluded that it was identical with the victoria whose mouth had been discovered about nine years before by captain stokes he therefore provisionally gave it the name of the victoria river ten kennedy on the return of mitchell The further prosecution of exploration in these districts was left to his assistant surveyor, Edmund Kennedy, who, having been sent to trace the course of the supposed Victoria River, followed its banks for a 150 miles below the place where Mitchell had left it. He was then forced to return through want of provisions, but he had gone far enough, however, to show that this stream was only the higher part of Cooper's Creek, discovered not long before by Captain Sturt. This river has a course of about 1,200 miles, and it is, therefore, the largest of central Australia, but its waters spread out into the broad marshes of Lake Eyre, and are there lost by evaporation. In 1848, Kennedy was sent to explore Cape York Peninsula. He was landed with a party of twelve men at Rockingham Bay, and striking inland to the northwest travelled towards cape york where a small schooner was to wait for him the difficulties met by the explorers were immense for in these tropical regions dense jungles of prickly shrubs impeded their course and lacerated their flesh while vast swamps often made their journey tedious and unexpectedly long thinking there was no necessity for all to endure these hardships he left eight of his companions at weymouth bay intending to call for them on his way back in the schooner he was courageously pushing through the jungle towards the north with three men and his black servant jackie when one of the party accidentally received a severe gunshot wound which made it impossible for him to proceed kennedy was now only a few miles distant from cape york and leaving the wounded man under the care of the two remaining whites he started accompanied by jackie to reach the cape and obtain assistance from the schooner they had not gone far and were on the banks of the escape river when they perceived that their steps were being closely followed by a tribe of natives whose swarthy bodies from time to time appeared among the trees kennedy now proceeded warily keeping watch all around but a spear urged by an unseen hand from among the leaves suddenly pierced his body from behind and he fell the blacks rushed forward but jacky fired and at the report they hastily fled jacky held up his master's head for a short time weeping bitterly kennedy knew he was dying and he gave his faithful servant instructions as to the papers he was to carry and the course he must follow not long after this he breathed his last and jacky with his tomahawk dug a shallow grave for him in the forest he spread his coat and shirt in the hollow laid the body tenderly upon them and covered it with leaves and branches then packing up the journals He plunged into the creek along which he walked, with only his head above the surface, until he reached the shore. Hastily making for the north, he reached the Cape, where he was taken on board the schooner. This expedition was one of the most disastrous of the inland explorations. The wounded man and the two who had been left with him were never afterwards heard of, in all probability they were slaughtered by the natives, whilst the party of eight who had been left at Weymouth Bay, after constant struggles with the natives, had been reduced, by starvation and disease, to only two, ere the expected relief arrived. 11. Gregory. In 1856 A. C. Gregory went in search of Leichhardt, and thinking he might possibly have reached the northwest coast took a small party to cambridge gulf travelling along the banks of the victoria river he crossed a low range of hills and discovered a stream to which he gave the name of sturt creek by following this he was led into a region covered with long ridges of glaring red sand resembling those which had baffled captain sturt except that in this desert there grew the scattered blades of the spinifex grass which cut like daggers into the hoofs of the horses the creek was lost in marshes and salt lakes and gregory was forced to retrace his steps till he reached the great bend in the victoria river then striking to the east he skirted the gulf of carpentaria about fifty miles from the shore and after a long journey arrived at morton bay but without any news regarding leichardt and his party his expedition however had explored a great extent of country and had mapped out the courses of two large rivers the victoria and the roper